0: There are few greater pleasures than driving down an open road, windows down, music playing, and the wind in your hair. But for many years, it seemed as though millennials and Gen Z were shying away from permanently committing to that open road with a car purchase. Some media outlets have reported over the years that many Gen Zers are more reluctant to get a driver's license than previous generations. However, at some point, owning a car becomes more than just a generational trend especially in the United States, where we are deeply entrenched in an auto-centric culture. While large cities like Chicago, New York, Boston, and San Francisco have a number of public transportation options, there's still a large portion of the country where people rely on cars to get around more efficiently and safely. Take the suburban areas around a lot of large cities. Sure, you may be able to commute into the city fairly easily using public transportation, but what happens in the suburbs when you need to go to a further grocery store or get to the doctor? In fact, in a recent survey released in January of 2023 and conducted by the auto insurance shopping website, The Zebra, 63% of Americans said that, quote, owning a car was necessary for easy living, end quote. And according to research conducted by the Pew Research Center in 2015, 88% of American households had at least one working car. The decline among younger drivers in the early 2000s was not caused by a generational backlash toward car culture or an overcommitment to reducing one's carbon footprint. The largest reason for their decline in driving was due to cost. If car ownership is potentially inevitable, where do we start? And how do we know if we're ready for a car? Should we buy or lease? And what else do we need to consider when we're establishing a budget? Start taking notes, because this is...
1: Up stuff.
0: Vroom, vroom, friends and Zoomers, welcome back to another episode of Grown-Up Stuff, How to Adult, where each episode we glow up a little more by learning a new skill for adulthood. And today, as you might have guessed already, we're digging into car buying. Matt, I feel like this is going to be just another one of those episodes where I really reveal how little I know about being a grown-up, because I have a confession to make. I have never actually owned a car.
1: I believe that. Uh, I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) That that tracks to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at this point, I have spent so much of my life living in big cities, and I've been lucky enough when I have needed a car to just be able to borrow one from any various family members. And I've had a lot of friends who have owned cars, and when they talk about financing and car payments and lease terms my mind starts to spin a little. But what about (laughs) you? Have you ever owned an automobile?
1: So I'd never owned a car either. um, And four years ago, I bought my first motorcycle. And... I think I was just so excited about buying one. I kind of like skipped over a lot of really important research, but basically like I knew that I needed to get a loan. And so I shopped around for a loan, but when I was at the dealership, they were able to get me a better interest rate on the loan itself. And so I actually ended up going with the bank that they recommended. But other than that, I signed a lot of papers. I'm not entirely sure if I had room (laughs) to like leverage a better deal. It does feel like I paid a lot of money, but I was able to pay off the loan early. So I didn't pay that much interest. And The motorcycle has been great, especially in New York City where like parking is hard and my wife and I really just take it to go get groceries. But I'm really excited to learn more about, because I eventually do want a car, what I could have done when I was in the dealership signing papers to really make it work in my favor.
0: The parking is a real challenge here in the city.
1: Uh, Whenever I drive around New York City on the motorcycle, I'm like, why are people in cars? Parking is impossible. (laughs) Like they're soon they're going to introduce congestion pricing and it's just going to be pandemonium.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's, like, there was a brief moment where I was like, oh, maybe I'll get a car because it'll give me a little bit more freedom to, you know, go visit family members who aren't in the city and, like, go you know, further upstate for, like, a little day trip and explore (laughs) nature. Um, And then I looked at how expensive it was to, like, get a parking space, too. And then I calculated insurance. And I was like, forget about it. Yeah, you want
1: to have another apartment to house your car? Like, no, thank you. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was like, I will be taking Metro North. Thank you. All right, cool. Sounds good help us really comprehend what goes into buying a car and where to start, we've asked Jamie Page Deaton to join us.
1: Jamie spent 15 years as the executive editor of the U.S. News and World Report's Best Cars team, where she oversaw new and used car rankings, reviews, and awards. She's also a member of the jury for the North American Car, Truck, and Utility of the Year Award.
0: Jamie is considered a car-buying expert. Today, she is the editor-in-chief of Car Talk. That's right, as in the radio show and podcast that brought us the beloved hosts, Click and Clack. Jamie,
2: thank you so much for joining us here
0: on Grown Up Stuff.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is my absolute favorite thing to talk about, so I feel a little bit selfish being here.
1: (laughs) There are a lot of considerations that we should make before we even decide to buy a car. What are some of those considerations?
2: Really just look at your budget because know that the price of the car is only the beginning. You've got to pay for gas. You've got to pay for insurance. You've got to pay for parking. So make sure that you have basically a really good car budget broken down. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it depends on where you live. If you live in a more rural or suburban area, yeah, you're probably going to need a car. But if you're able to get around, you know, with public transportation and a bike and you only occasionally need a car, go with a car sharing service, go with a car rental service for those times where you need to go to Ikea or you need to drive to, you know, visit your family or whatever, because it doesn't really make sense to have a car that you're paying for all the time that you're only going to use occasionally. That's why I go with Zipcar, Jamie, because <laughs> city bike and good old
0: MTA gets me around with everything else and then occasionally for that IKEA trip, I just rent a Zipcar.
2: Yeah. This is another mistake that I do see people making is buying way more car than they need. Mm. I shouldn't um, malign the people in my neighborhood, but there's a bunch of people in my neighborhood (laughs) who do this. They're like, oh, well, you know, we go on one big road trip a year, so we have to have this Suburban. And it's like, why don't you rent a Suburban and then drive around in something less expensive because you pay for the Suburban for the entire year. And if you look at what you're paying versus what it would cost to rent a very big car for that week or rent a truck to take your boat to the lake or whatever, it's often gonna be way, way, way less because that smaller car is going to be less gas. It's going to be less expensive. It's going to be cheaper to insure. And if you really, really want to ride around in a suburban, great. More power to you. But if you're doing it because you might need its capabilities once in a while, eh, really ask yourself if you want to you know, pay for it year round. It's about how much car do I need? how much am I actually going to use it? And then are there other options? Because there is, I think, kind of just in American culture, a little bit of a knee jerk where it's like, yep, okay, got to have a car now. And that's not always true. Just don't make a pain of yourself by constantly borrowing your friend's cars. If you're constantly borrowing their cars, well, then it might be time to get your own.
1: Right. And I think that the piece of advice that I heard the most about buying a car before I bought my first is um, that people really say that car loses value the second you drive it off the lot. So why is this and how could it factor into our decision along with our budget on whether or not to buy a new or used car?
2: Yeah. So that is 100% true. And the reason that it drops is because the second you drive it off the lot, congratulations, it's a used car and people aren't willing to pay as much for it. And so that value just drops, even if you literally put a mile on it. Mm. And it's because it's already been registered to you. You're already shown as the owner. So it's a used car. What that kind of traps people in, in a lot of cases, and why you really, I think, need to be careful when you're buying a new car, especially if you're financing it, is a lot of auto loans, you don't have to put any money down, which is great if you don't have thousands of dollars lying around. But what happens is you finance the car, you drive it off the lot, and you're immediately upside down on your loan. You immediately have negative equity because the car is not worth the amounts that you financed, Mm. which is problematic if, for example, you get into a car accident. Your insurance is only going to pay the value of the car, not the value of the loan that you have left on it. So it's just something to really keep in mind when you're looking at a new car. And to be clear, the same thing can happen with a used car as well. But that drop in um, value just tends to be less and less every year that goes on.
1: And would you mind explaining uh, for our listeners, aka me, what does being upside down on a loan mean? Thank you. Mean Same. Questionable? <laughs> Thanks, Matt.
2: Yeah, it means you owe more than the car is worth. Got it. So if the car is worth $20,000 and you've financed $25,000, you have $5,000 in negative equity, which means that if you go to sell the car and you get $20,000 for it, just to unload it, you have to come up with $5,000. Or let's say, you know, knock wood that this never happens, your car gets totaled. Your insurance company is going to give you $20,000 and then you're going to be like, I need to come up with $5,000 to pay off the loan because your loan company is going to be like, hey, a car loan is a secured loan. The car is collateral. There's no longer anything for them to repossess. So they're going to come after you like that day for $5,000. This is why I always recommend if you're getting a new car or you're leasing a car always get insurance that will cover more than the car's worth. So like replacement value plus 20 percent. Most car insurers offer something like this.
0: It sounds like basically everybody is upside down if they buy a new car and they're using a loan. So it sounds like really the only thing to protect you is getting that insurance.
2: Not necessarily. Okay. If you put a big enough down payment down the general like personal finance rule, which I don't think most people can handle it these days because it's so difficult to save. Mm -hmm. But you should be putting like 20% down on a car loan. Okay. But it's hard for people to come up with a couple thousand dollars in order to do that. And so if you can't come up with a couple thousand dollars, you can kind of amortize that kind of money by getting that replacement value insurance. Because that like couple thousand dollars, you know, if you're putting 20% down, that effectively means that you've absorbed the depreciation of the car when you've driven it off the lot. And so you won't have negative equity at that point. Okay, that makes sense. And this is a perfect segue
0: into how we figure out what we can spend on a car. We all know the rule of, you know, a third of your paycheck goes to rent. Is there a rule for that in terms of your budget for a car?
2: I don't have a hard and fast rule because I like fancy cars. Um, (laughs) I spent way too much of my budget on fancy cars. It really needs to come down to what you're comfortable with and give yourself a ton of wiggle room in that budget. Mm -hmm. So like if you're ending the month with an extra $700, that does not mean you can handle a $700 car payment. That means that you've got to take into account gas, insurance, parking, all that stuff. And you should really be shooting for maybe a $400 car payment because you don't want no wiggle room in your budget. So really take a hard, hard look at your budget when you're thinking about how much you can afford. The smart kind of personal finance thing is to not look at the payment, but to look at the total cost of the loan. Mm -hmm. But given the current economy... I don't think that's realistic for the vast majority of people who actually need to get cars. I think you actually do have to shop on payment because if you're looking at total cost of the loan, chances are that you have a lot of money to put down. You might have a really good car that you have a ton of equity in to trade in. That's for people who are perhaps a little bit older, more established, and in a good financial position. And so really go through and just go online and look up car loan calculator.
1: Does that factor in things like we talked about, like, Taxes, insurance, fuel, maintenance, parking, all that stuff?
2: No, it'll just look at the car loan. Because I mean, if you're talking about like taxes and insurance and stuff like that, that's highly personalized um, depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. Honestly, your insurance is going to depend a lot on you and what kind of driver you've been and honestly to what kind of car that you end up getting. So you should talk to your car insurance company and say, hey, look, I'm thinking of getting this car what's the monthly cost and insurance going to be and shop around and find, you know, a company that's going to get you the coverage that you need at a reasonable price. But yeah, you have to look at kind of the total budget of the car and not just the car payment, not just the car price.
0: Yeah, and I will say there are, I think Gas Buddy does some really great things in terms of like calculating how much your gas might be. I know they do it on a trip basis. I've used it for that before. I think there are some tools there that might be able to help in terms of figure out how much your car will need for a year or something like that.
2: Yeah, and fuel you know, it's the EPA site, and they will go through and say, you know, how much you're likely to spend on gas given the model of car that you're looking at. And they even, I think, have some maintenance costs and things there too. So all of this information is out there. Take an afternoon, build a spreadsheet, and you'll have a good sense of what fits into my budget.
0: There are a lot of costs to calculate when buying a car, and all of these additional costs just seem to go up and up each year. According to the latest research from AAA, the average yearly cost to own and operate a new car in 2022 was about $894 a month. And that calculation includes the cost of insurance, maintenance, registration, depreciation, finance charges, and gas prices, the latter of which is currently up to $3.56 a gallon as the national average at the time of this recording.
2: When you're deciding what kind of car to buy, budget needs to be number one. But the other thing that you want to keep in mind, especially if you're not able to put a down payment down, is, is this car going to last me through the next couple of phases of my life? Don't just get the car that works today. Look for a car that's going to work for you over the next couple of years, especially if you have goals and things you're looking at. If you're like, hey, man, in a year, I'm going to move to Chicago and you're currently in Florida, maybe go ahead and get a car with all-wheel drive, even though you don't need it in Florida, because you're going to need it in other places.
0: Oh, for sure. Jamie, you just keep perfectly segueing into everything we want to talk about, because I do want to discuss about how we find the right car for us. How do we determine personal must-have features? Like you had mentioned, all-wheel drive, if you're going to live in a place like Chicago or Minnesota or anywhere where there is lots of snow. (laughs) (laughs)
2: I mean, it really, really kind of comes down to like, how am I going to use this car? Mm -hmm. If you're like, I am going to use this car to drive to the grocery store and I'm going to use it to drive to work. And then I'm going to use it to drive to the beach three times a year. You can probably get away with something really small, but if you need a little bit more space, you know, look at a compact SUV and just kind of work your way up. And the thing is you can absolutely go to dealers and look at these cars. All you have to do is just be prepared to repeat, I am not buying today. I am not buying today. I am not buying today. I am just researching. The other thing is, if you have friends, neighbors, family members who have cars that are similar to what you're interested in, ask them, like, what do you like about it? What do you don't like about it? The really nice thing about most new car and and honestly most used cars now because the technology's been around for a while is that when it comes to like the interior stuff, like your infotainment system, it's really easy to find systems like Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. And I absolutely recommend that you get those because- Rather than having to learn a brand new infotainment system when you get a car, you plug your phone in and it's your phone, right? And you know how to use it. And you can use the navigation app that you like. That's the one feature that I really recommend people look for in terms of the interior. Beyond that, yeah, if you live in Wisconsin, go ahead, you know, look for heated seats, get the all wheel drive, but really start with the size. Make sure it's a size that is gonna work for you for a couple of years, even if plans change a little bit and then just kind of go from there.
0: Okay, so asking for a friend who, It's a friend, it's not me, who has had many accidents in reverse, mostly in in the early years of their driving. Again, it's not me. It's somebody totally different. We'll call
1: her... Holly? Holly. You've told me about Holly before.
0: Yeah. What are some of the safety features that are now standard? Like, I know there's lane departure. Again, for this friend, not me, is the backup camera standard now? Let's talk about what are those standard features that are coming in cars now.
2: Yeah, your friend Holly can rest assured that backup cameras are standard now on new cars and have been for many, many years. (sighs) So the vast majority of used cars are going to have them too. And get this, even if your friend finds a car that doesn't have a backup camera, you can get an aftermarket backup camera. Okay. So it's really, really helpful just if you continually have those types of accidents or, you know, you're just parking in tight spaces all the time. But there are a ton of active safety features available now talking about, like you mentioned, lane departure warning, what that does is the car beeps at you if it senses that you are veering out of your lane. In some cases, the car will also have lane keeping assist, which means that the car will kind of steer itself back into the lane. Or if you, you know, attempt to change lanes without signaling, you're going to feel a little bit of resistance in the steering wheel as you do it as kind of reminder, because the car is going to be like, you didn't tell me you were changing lanes. Now you're veering out of the lane. What's going on?
0: Also, it's just being like, don't be an asshole. Like, tell people you're changing lanes, okay? Yeah,
2: it is actually a really good (laughs) trainer. So, you turn your signal on so you don't have to wrestle with the steering wheel. Yeah. There's also forward collision warning, often with automatic braking. So, If you're in stop and go traffic and you might hit the car in front of you, the car is going to be like, pay attention. And occasionally, you know, if it comes with automatic braking, it's going to slam on the brakes. Some available cars will have this tends to be optional, not standard, but it's out there. Rear collision warning with automatic braking. So if you're gonna back into something, the car will stop you. Holly would love that. Yes, she would enjoy it. There's also blind spot warning. So if there's somebody in your blind spot and you're like, I'm going to change lanes, the car is going to be like, I'm going to flash a light at you so you know somebody's there. Mm -hmm. That is particularly helpful if you've packed your car full of stuff and you can't see in your blind spot. So this way, the car will look out for you. So there are a number of these active safety features, though I hesitate to call them safety features. The best way to think about them are driver assistance. Features because they help you drive better. Some cars now can get like super nannying about it too, where you know if you've been driving for a while and it detects that like you're getting sleepy, it'll be like, hey, why don't you pull over, have a cup of coffee? And I'm like, you're not my mom. Shut up. No. Like I'm gonna keep driving.
0: Wait, really? How does it do that?
2: So there are a number of different systems that do this, but first, it's gonna look at like how good you are at staying in your lane, and this is super creepy there's scanners in the car that are going to be looking at your eyes. No. And if your eyes are not on the road or like Subaru has this where it's been like, look at the road, Jamie. And I'm like, okay, mom, Subaru. Like, but it's like, this is helpful.
0: I mean, let's be honest. If any car was a mom, it would be a Subaru. Let's be real. (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
2: You can also get cars now with active cruise control and I'm not calling it self-driving because I think it's very important for everyone to understand that there is no self-driving car on the market right now. The best you can do is a car that lets you take your foot off the gas and your hands off the wheel, but you still have to sit there and pay attention and step in if something happens that the car cannot handle And so that doesn't mean you can be on your phone. That doesn't mean you can watch movies. It definitely doesn't mean you can sleep. But just know that there are these features out there you're going to have to spend to get them. But when you have a car with them, the best way to think about them is that they don't exist at all. Because these are systems, they're really meant to save you from mistakes, not save you from kind of making the mistakes. So drive like you don't have these features, but they will step in and you'll be happy that you have them if an accident happens or something like this.
0: We'll be right back with more grown-up stuff, how to adult after a quick break. And we're back with more grown-up stuff, how to adults. We've talked a lot about identifying what you need a car for and then using those points to choose the right car for you and your needs. But a major point of interest for many car buyers comparing makes and models is a vehicle's MPG, or miles per gallon. It seems like every few months, the price of gas just keeps rising. Perhaps this is one of the many reasons why purchases of electric vehicles, or EVs, increased in the U.S. by two-thirds in 2022. According to data published by J.D. Power, during that time, EVs accounted for 5.8% of all new vehicles sold that year. In 2021, that number was just 3.2%. Plus, with growing concern around human-caused climate change, EVs or even hybrid models offer car shoppers seemingly greener options for their everyday transportation. I wanna talk a little bit too about EVs and hybrids, you know, millennials and Gen Z, like, I think a lot of us are very environmentally conscious and we're trying to think about, okay, if we do have to buy a car, how can we find a car that has a lower impact on the environment? What are the differences between an EV and a hybrid? What are the things we need to consider when deciding between these two options? You know, what's the advantage of buying one over the other? Are there tax advantages for buying one over the other?
2: Yeah. So first you have what's known as an ICE car, which is an internal combustion engine, and that's a car that runs on gas. Okay. Then you have a hybrid. There are a number of different types of hybrids. In fact, most gas cars now, not most, but I'd say a sizable minority are actually technically hybrids. Really? But okay. But they're not the kind of hybrid that can drive under electric power alone. They generally, and this cracks me up because a lot of times they're performance cars and they throw in an electric motor so you can go faster. <laughs> so it's using the technology to burn more gas. Okay. But when you're looking at a hybrid, the two main types that you're going to look at are a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid. A plug-in hybrid is a hybrid that you can plug in. And so what happens is with, let's say a regular hybrid, is it's got a gas engine. It also has an electric motor and some batteries. On a regular hybrid, those batteries are going to be charged. This is really interesting. Every time you brake, it recaptures the friction from the braking to charge the battery. I've seen this. That battery in the electric motor is going to allow the gas engine to turn off while you're at a stoplight. And it's going to assist the car so it uses less gas, but it's really not going to allow you to drive on electric power alone for any kind of distance, really over a mile. A plug-in hybrid, On the other hand, is a car that you plug in and you charge the batteries with electricity, you know, from your house or from a charger. And then it will also regenerate some of the power, you know, from the braking. Mm -hmm. These you can generally drive about 20 to 30 miles on electric power alone. And then when you're out of electric power, the gas engine kicks on and you're good to go. I really, really like plug-in hybrids and recommend them for almost everybody simply because the charging infrastructure in a lot of areas is not so good for EVs. And if you don't live in a house with a garage or an apartment complex that has dedicated chargers you're gonna have issues charging your car. And so a plug-in hybrid, you don't have to worry about that. You can just go to a gas station and drive normally. The EV takes it a step further, it removes the gas engine. So you are only on battery power. And depending on how much money you spend, Mm -hmm. uh, you can get anywhere from like 100 to over 300 miles of electric range. With EVs, the thing to really consider is, not only do I have access to a charging facility regularly, but also what type of charging facility is it? And how quickly can my car take a charge from that type of charging facility? Right. So there are different levels of charge. You know, A level one charge is basically like, I plugged it into the plug at my house. Um, and then there's <laughs> level two chargers, which is basically like, I plugged it into the kind of outlet that a dryer would use. You sometimes see a lot of these, at least where I live, there are a lot of level two chargers around like grocery stores and stuff, which is great, you pull in, you charge, but they charge really, really slowly because they're not at a level that like shoots out lightning. A level three charger is kind of the equivalent of shooting lightning out into your car. But still, depending again on how much charge your car can take and how quickly it can take it, kind of the holy grail that a lot of automakers shoot for is that the car will charge to 80% in 20 minutes. And so that's something you really need to think about. That said, pure EVs tend to have more tax incentives which is really really nice interesting provided that the right percentage of the car has been assembled in the United States and has american made car parts these rolled out last year you can get up to $7500 in a tax credit wow here's what's really neat about it though it used to be that you could get a huge tax credit you know with a hybrid but you had to wait until you filed your taxes And for a lot of people, that was a pain. And that credit was non-transferable. What you can do now is you can transfer that credit, say, to the dealer and get that $7,500 as a discount on the car, Mm. which is really nice. I should say it's up to $7,500, again, depending on the type of car that you're getting and how much of it was made in the United States. You should also always check, though, because localities often have incentives for buying electric or hybrid cars. So check those out as well, because that can save you a significant amount of money if your town, city or state also has um, some incentives there.
0: Amazing. Wasn't there a recent legislation that was signed through where there will be more, there's a certain number of EV stations? Talk to me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, this infrastructure is not going to change without government support. Right. Like, it's just not. And so there's been some legislation that has been pushed through to really help build out a national EV charging network. But- as private companies see that there's profit to be made in this and you know government subsidies to be made in charging networks, there will be more of them available. The other thing is Tesla has the best charging network. The smartest thing that Tesla ever did was build out the charging network as they built out the cars. And they are now allowing other EVs to use their chargers. So I think Chevy and Fords can now use, the newer Chevy and Ford EVs can use Tesla superchargers. Those are really fast chargers. They're all over the place. It's not a big deal at all to drive cross-country just on the Tesla supercharger network. So really look at, you know, if you're thinking about an EV, you have a whole nother day of research to do on (laughs) what kind of charging network you're going to need, what's available in your area. There are apps all over the place that can help you figure this out. Tons and tons of businesses devoted to it. It's also very easy if you just like Google the name of the car you're considering and then forum. You're gonna find a lot of owner forums and you can ask your questions there from people who are actually living it. And they're always super passionate and super helpful.
0: Hybrids and EVs are a great option when you're looking at buying a car, especially as the infrastructure grows for charging stations. But gas versus battery mileage is only a small factor we should consider when choosing a car. We wanna know that whatever we buy, it will be dependable that will get our money's worth and not end up with a lemon. But what's the best resource to determine the longevity and reliability of a car?
1: So here at Grown Up Stuff, we are big believers in getting what you pay for. So let's say we've, you know, we thought about the size of the vehicle. Let's say we thought about the features that we want. And we've thought about buying new or used. We've got it narrowed down to a couple of models of cars. With that in mind, what are car reliability scores where can we find them, and how can we use them to determine what kind of car we should buy?
2: Well... A car reliability score is like an index of the data that the car reliability company has gathered on that particular year make and model. It's not very specific. It just gives you kind of a ballpark. It can help you kind of eliminate a car if the scores are very, very different. The other thing to remember, too, is if you're looking at a car that's like less than three years old, there's not going to be good reliability data on it because not enough of them will have broken down. That makes sense. So that's going to be a little bit of a question there. There are a number of sources about car reliability. None of them are perfect, but you can kind of aggregate them and get a sense. So J.D. Power is kind of like the gold standard of automotive dependability and maintenance scores. They're not perfect. So the way that J.D. Power gets their scores, they have the initial quality study, which is after you buy a car and like this is pretty cool if you ever buy a new car within the first three months, J.D. Power might send you a survey and you get a dollar if you fill it out. I've done it. And it's like such a thrill to feel like you're contributing. But the initial quality study just really looks at things that have really gone wrong in the first 30 days. Then J.D. Power also has the vehicle dependability study, which they do after the car has been on the road for a couple of years. And people fill out the problems that they've had with the car. And so that is a pretty good data point. The only thing that I would just caution people about is that all of the problems people have with their cars are given the same weight. So somebody's like radio not working is given the same weight as somebody's transmission falling out on the highway. Ah. So take that a little bit with a grain of salt. Consumer Reports... You have to pay to access it. But if it saves you money in maintenance in the long term, consider it an investment. Just get like a month worth of consumer reports to go look at their car dependability ratings. They tend to be really, really good. And then this is another just kind of Google hack. Google the year make model of the car that you're considering and then problems. And what will come up is a lot of those owner forums. And you can kind of scan through and see the issues that people are having and what it costs to fix. CarMD is another place that they do a vehicle health study. Theirs is just based on code readers. So those are the things like when your check engine light comes on, the mechanic plugs in a code reader. So again, it's not going to capture everything, but it's going to capture a good chunk of it. And then here is a little like hack that I absolutely love. Love a hack. And I am here to talk to you about your car's extended warranty. Um, What you can do is call up an extended warranty company, give a fake name so they don't call you back, (laughs) and say, hey, what's the cost for an extended warranty on this year, Megan, model of a car? And what you can kind of tell, because these extended warranty companies they're gonna make money on that warranty. So if it has a super expensive extended warranty, you don't want that car. That means it's gonna break a lot because they want you to pay a lot in case they have to back up that warranty. Mm. If it has a cheap extended warranty or a relatively cheap extended warranty, and just be clear, I'm not saying you get the extended warranty, I'm saying get quotes on the extended warranty. So you know it's a little bit of a backdoor way to figure it out, but there are a ton of resources out there. But just bear in mind, especially if you're buying a used car, the previous owner could have just totally messed that car up. So it's always going to be a little bit of a gamble. While car buying is not currently
0: in the near future for me, I do feel more equipped to figure out when I'll be ready and how to find the right car to fit my needs when that day does come. For all of you who are thinking, wait a minute, that's all you're going to talk about in a How to Buy a Car episode? Please do not fret. Jamie had so much great information to share about car buying that we quite literally had to split this into two episodes. But here's what I've learned from Jamie in this part one of car buying grown up stuff. For starters, figure out what you actually need a car for. Don't decide on a huge expensive car that you're really only gonna need maybe once or twice a year. Rent that car instead, you'll end up saving money. Make a budget, determine how much you can afford on a down payment and for monthly payments. But don't forget that this has to include things like gas prices, maintenance for the car, and insurance payments. Being upside down on a car loan is bad news. This happens because the second you drive off the lot, your new car depreciates in value significantly. And if you've used a car loan, they only care about the value you paid for the car, not its current value. Ways you can avoid this? A higher down payment, or get car insurance that will cover more than the value of the car. There are a lot of great safety features on cars today, including backup cameras. But remember, these should not be so heavily relied on. Think of them more as a safety net if you make a mistake and not a replacement for good driving practices. While traditional hybrids run on both gas and electricity, they can't go significant distances on battery alone. A plug-in hybrid car, however, can generate power from braking like a traditional hybrid, but you can also plug them into charge as well. These types of hybrids can allow you to go 20 to 30 times further on electric power alone. There's a lot of ways to figure out how dependable or reliable your new car is gonna be. You can always check out JD Power for free dependability ratings. That's all for today's episode. Okay, Matt, now I know I ask you at the end of every episode, what's up next? But I actually know this time what's up next because we have more car buying guidance.
1: That's right. Jamie Page Deaton is joining us for part two, where we will talk more about financing, compare buying new versus used, and share tips for negotiating at a dealership.
0: Ugh, I love to haggle in any setting.
1: So give me all those discount car tips. We'll find out for sure in two weeks on the next episode of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult.
0: And remember, you might not always be graded in life, but
1: it never hurts to do your homework.
0: This is a production from Ruby Studios from iHeartMedia.
1: Our executive producers are Molly Sosha
0: And Matt Stillo. This episode was engineered by Matt Stillo.
1: And written by Molly Sosha.
0: This episode was fact-checked by Casby Bias.
1: Additional editing by Sierra Spreen.
0: We want to thank our teammates at Ruby Studios, including Ethan Fixell, Rachel swan Krasnov, Amber Smith, Deborah Garrett, and Andy Kelly.
2: When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's
1: backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty. You stop thinking about what you can't do